0: Yeah, I mean I I think you're right to highlight all of the fantastic resources and effort that are going on out there that a lot of people aren't aware of. And and just to build on it, I would also notice there's a lot of innovation going on in the private sector right now that perhaps flies under the radar. We have a hydrogen fuel cell company in in Canada that is is renowned around the world. We have electric bus manufacturers in Canada that that people aren't aware of. There's a company on the East Coast that fixes carbon dioxide into concrete that's seeing its its products used more and more globally. Uh, We have that pilot project in Western Canada with carbon engineering to pull it out of the air and fix it underground. So tons of innovation going on.
1: Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. In this episode, I'll be talking to economist Jason Dion of the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices, about a new report Canada's net zero future finding our way in the global transition so welcome to energy talks Jason thanks for having me now I have to tell you that I'm very excited about this report and I'll tell you why I'm excited the I've been involved in reporting and analyzing and discussing uh, the global energy transition since 2013-ish and one of my takeaways from all of those conversations is that energy transitions are very poorly understood. Vaclav Smeal, notwithstanding, uh, amongst even policymakers and executives and people in the energy industry, they don't have a good concept of how energy transitions work. And it's complicated, in this case, with this energy transition because the global energy system is so big it's so complex that getting our arms around it having a structure to the conversation so that we can you know take it apart and understand how it works and where it's going that's very very difficult what your study has done at the national level the canadian economy is put structure around that conversation and is that a fair takeaway from your study
0: yeah, I think it's it's a great way of, of framing what were our objectives with this study was to drive a, a more concrete and informed conversation around what the future might look like. I think parts of that transition are uh, things that we can sort of wrap our arms around. We know what a lot of it will look like, but there's a lot we don't know. And so this study was really designed to embed and unpack the role of uncertainty in that long-term transition and and acknowledge there are parts of it that we're not sure exactly how it'll play out that doesn't mean it's a black hole it's not just a void you know we can say there are a number of possibilities so we've we've been careful to not go too far in this report and saying that's the future there's multiple possible net zero futures and we've been careful to unpack those and all the potential barriers we might hit along the way in those nothing's easy when it comes to this
1: I'll add another wrinkle to that, and long-time readers and listeners will have heard this. May, me say this many times, but that is that energy transitions are marked roughly in the middle. You know, if they're a 50-year process, roughly 20 to 30 years in, you're going to get a decade of really intense disruption. And I've interviewed energy experts from around the world who agree that the 2020s, is going to be that decade of disruption in this energy transition? Would you agree with that observation?
0: Yeah, I think I think we're feeling a lot of that uncertainty and, and disruption, and dislocation now. I think people want a concrete sense of what it means to get to net zero, to to get there in terms of our climate change goals, and we don't always have a clear picture of what that looks like yet because a number of things are in flux and in play, and and so. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, that we're likely to still be feeling a lot of that disruption and dislocation in the years ahead, but that it might start to resolve itself as we move a little further out. So our report has lots to say about how we navigate that uncertainty over the next 10 years, and we'll get into that. But but yeah, I think that's right. I think that is the moment that we're in.
1: Now, in this conversation, we're going to roughly follow the structure of your study. So first of all, we're going to talk about the big picture, the way you've framed the issue. Then we're going to talk about the eight key findings uh, of the study and finish up with the four recommendations. So let's start with the way that you framed the path to net zero and they would be policy choices, technology innovation, and then factors beyond domestic control. Again, you know, uh, talking about that uncertainty Uh, global market shifts, changing energy demand, those things we, as a small trade oriented country, Canada doesn't have a a lot of control over those. So what made you pick those three things uh, in order to frame the study?
0: So I think it was important to right at the outset, acknowledge that there are things in our control in this transition and there are things outside of our control and all of these are going to matter. They're all going to shape it. And what we really did in the way we approached this study is try to build those in to the analysis. So specifically, our, this is a scenario analysis. So we've looked at over 60 different scenarios where Canada gets to net zero. And we are across those you know, looking at different outcomes across uncertain variables. Again, those ones that are in and outside of our control. So across our scenarios, we're varying assumptions around things like well what is the degree of climate policy action and the pace that's going on in other countries as as we undertake our own transition because that'll matter a lot right in terms of the cost of technologies what are the costs of technologies to the point there that you know how are these things going to evolve how quickly might costs come down will you know next generation technologies prove out or not and we have all sorts of varying assumptions there We varied assumptions around what is the level of future global oil demand and global oil prices. I mean, that's going to make a big difference for Canada with the shape of its transition, given our large oil and gas sector. Uh, We're also varying assumptions around, well, our, our negative emissions technologies going to be a big part of the solution space. So well, we can get into what that means in a little bit, but there's these solutions that suck carbon dioxide out of the air and hold them underground. It, it sounds sci-fi, but you know, these, there's pilot projects for this already. There, there's movement in this direction. Very uncertain. So will it work out? Will it play a really big role or not? Unclear. So we've included that uncertainty in our analysis to really be able to unpack And this was kind of the the critical thing we've been able to do with this report is you know with our 60 scenarios rather than looking at all of them individually which would get a little tedious honestly we zoomed out and said okay well given this is the larger possibility space around the net zero transition what's consistent what shows up again and again what's always true regardless of how the transition plays out and where there are differences what are the big drivers of those differences so again, it's it's going to matter, it's going to depend on uh, our policy choices, you know, uh, investment decisions going on in other countries, climate policy in Canada and around the world. And we've tried to really reflect and embed all that uncertainty in the conclusions we've been able to draw.
1: Okay, so we framed the study with policy, technology and uncertainty. Those are kind of the three big framing items. So let's talk about key findings. The first one is a net zero Canada is possible but requires strong policy. And this is really interesting because uh, listeners outside of Canada uh, may not know that in mid-December, the federal government brought in a major update to its climate policy, uh, suite of climate policies. And many economists and environmental groups uh, praised that and said that Canada finally has a policy framework that's capable of achieving net zero by 2050. What's your take on that?
0: So yeah, I I think that's right, but maybe with one asterisk on there that I think what we have in hand now, finally, is a credible plan that can get to Canada's targets. Now, I say targets because we have a 2030 target and we have that net zero 2050 target. What we have now is a credible plan that is capable of getting Canada to its 2030 target. To go the full distance to net zero is going to take more than that. That That's a multi-decade undertaking. But at last, we have something in hand that's consistent with our ambition. You know, Canada, like other countries, has this perennial record of missing targets. So I and others were quite heartened to see something that could actually get there. And, and on a personal note, that carbon pricing is being as a driving force in there. Uh, you know, that's an efficient mechanism. It's one that I'm glad to see in there with... The knowledge i have about how complex to manage a transition like this is something that relies on market forces is great so I, I was personally happy to see that there are lots of ways to do it and i think we would have been happy with any plan that could credibly get to that target uh, but yeah i think we finally have something in hand uh, that we can be confident can get canada where it needs to go still plenty of work to do and plenty to build on there uh, to get to that longer term target though
1: the second key finding is that big transitions are inevitable. And here's my take on this, Jason, and you can tell me what you think of it. This, you know, energy transitions in the past have been 50 to 75 years in length. And generally, if you think of the adoption S curve, it's the that first part of the curve where it's really flat. You don't get a lot of... Uh, uh, you don't get a lot of change during the first de- couple of decades uh, in the t- w- while the technology is immature and developing. And then you kind of hit the inflection point and the curve begins to be- get steep. And then that's when you get market penetration of these new, new technologies, new energy technologies. And I would argue that many of the technologies that are beginning to move, on, get on that steep part of the curve had their roots in at the very least the late 20th century. So I'm thinking of modern solar panels, wind turbines, the elect- first electric vehicles that came out in, you know, like the uh, GM's EV1, uh, you know, the lithium ion battery, uh, you know, all of those tech and many, many more technologies really got started in that period and then matured over the first two decades of the of this century so that they're now econ- more economic, they're competitive with, with uh, fossil fuel-based technologies. And that change is what really is the fundamental driver of the ener- this energy transition and makes it inevitable. What's your take?
0: Yeah, so I mean, I'd, I'd certainly agree with all that and I'd, I might even broaden the frame. So when, when we talk about big transitions are inevitable in the report, we're thinking of not only shifts in energy systems, but larger economic shifts. So, you know, automation, uh, you know, a shift to a service economy, all these large forces that have been going on, globalization for, for years and decades, underscore that status quo is, is not a thing, right? That we need to expect and embrace change. You know, and we can come back to this, but I think even our oil and gas sector is really illustrating that, that there are larger global forces at play that mean that we can't count on that as an engine of economic prosperity in Canada. So there are challenges associated with those larger transitions. And the point being, we really need to embrace change uh, if we want to continue to be prosperous in the global economy and and create opportunities for the next generation. So energy transitions are part of that. It's also a bigger point to our mind.
1: Now, the third key finding is that Canada is uniquely positioned to capitalize on emerging opportunities. And we can think of a couple of opportunities off the top of our head, like the demand that's uh, emerging for uh, metals and and minerals for battery uh, production, for instance. And Canada has many of those as a mining sector that's focused on nickel and, and other minerals. And But you also mentioned oil and gas, uh, which I thought was interesting, because that's a sector that is really concerned about its long-term future, and that there may not be opportunities as we transition to low-carbon electricity. What's uh, what's your take?
0: Yeah, so I I think the first thing that we'd underscore there is that I think people reflexively assume in Canada that our oil and gas sector means getting to net zero is a much bigger challenge for us than it is for others. And that, that's true. It does create some challenges, certainly. But what we point out in the report is that it, that sector itself creates opportunities. A lot of the know-how and capacity and expertise that exists there can be really helpful for getting technologies off the ground like hydrogen production, uh, geothermal energy, biofuel production. So there's some alignment there and that sector itself creates opportunities. We also, by virtue of being a large resource rich country with a lot of land mass, have unique opportunities that other countries don't have. Uh, Nature-based solutions that sequester carbon dioxide in land. We can do those at a scale other countries can't. Um, we can be producing biofuels to a degree that could meet a lot of our own needs and export to the world. So there's a lot of opportunities, a lot of advantages that I think we don't often reflexively think of that are, are important to note. But we also are careful to highlight that that doesn't mean that we'll just simply get to enjoy them. The, the transition and the opportunities, the advantages have to be seized. It, action is, is key to our success here.
1: Well, I couldn't agree more, and I've written many columns uh, arguing for that very thing. So let's talk about key finding number four, which is scaling up of safe bets, which are uh, low risk solutions that are available today. And just to illustrate for listeners, you could put electrification of transportation uh, in that category because uh, battery prices are dropping, electric vehicle prices are dropping, not, and not just in cars and trucks, but in uh, medium and heavy duty trucks as well, garbage trucks, uh, delivery vans, uh, that, that sort of thing. And, and it's cheaper to do it with electric than it is to, to use gasoline and diesel. What are the kinds of safe bets are we talking about?
0: Yeah, and I'll, I'll maybe start by defining what we think of as a safe bet, since to be fair, we did invent the term. So it's, it's really those things that are commercially available today where there's no major constraints or barriers to scaling them up. And these are the things that play a significant role on the path to net zero in all of our scenarios. So no matter how that net zero transition plays out, these things are there. What that underscores is that these are things we can move forward aggressively with confidence starting today that we don't have to wait and see on any of this stuff. So it includes, as you mentioned, electric vehicles, uh, also energy efficiency, so equipment and upgrades, uh, methane capture in the oil and gas sector, uh, electric heat pumps in buildings. So there's a number of solutions that we can act on with confidence starting today. And what's really critical there is that that's true even when that next generation stuff works out in a big way. And I think too often we sort of think of the promise of tomorrow's technology as a reason to take a wait and see approach. I think we've proven in this study that that doesn't make sense because even when those things work out in a big way, these things are still doing a lion's share of the work, especially over the next 10 years. It's really after that, that those other things start to play a bigger role. So the job in front of us is crystal clear. And in terms of Canada's 2030 target, what we find is these safe bets can get us two thirds of the way there, and in some cases, as much as 90%. So they're critical to the job in front of us. And they're an area where the net zero transition is not uncertain. We know these things are going to play a role. So let's get on with it.
1: Now the fifth key finding is wildcards and the role that they will play. And they're very important in your study uh, to Canada's transition to net zero. And here we're talking high risk, high reward solutions still in the early stages of development. And that gets us into the innovation and innovation uh, in this particular energy transition across many sectors and many types of technologies seems to me to be absolutely critical to achieving net zero by 2050, but also economic success and competitiveness as the global economy changes.
0: Yeah, and so we really think of the wild cards as the things that could prove really critical to unlocking the deeper cost-effective reductions needed to get to Canada's long-term target. So just to be a bit specific, it includes things like non-emitting hydrogen production, uh, second generation biofuels. So instead of using food-based feedstocks like corn, making them out of stuff like switchgrass, uh, and even negative emissions solutions themselves, stuff that pulls carbon dioxide out of the air, like I was talking about earlier. So these things are really, really important, but they come with some uncertainty we see a lot of variation across our scenarios in not only whether they play a role but the size of that role so we need to sort of embrace uh that uncertainty we can't let it paralyze us but the real takeaway for us when it comes to wild cards is yes the potential is real uh but they also have to go alongside those safe bets which i think gets to our next key finding
1: before we get to the next key finding, a little bit more on the wild cards. Uh, I've interviewed Dr. Sarah Hastings Simons from the University of Calgary uh, a number of times. And part of her research is about the importance of government spending on research development and commercialization of new technologies and how even if government spends a lot of money and that technology ultimately fails, overall in the big picture, those expenditures, the the that funding, the public funding, is really key uh, during these kinds of transitions. And so, would would you agree that that any public money and policy support that goes into these wildcards, even the unsuccessful ones, are still worth making the uh, making the investment and not taking a wait and see approach?
0: Yeah. So. I, I think what we have to accept with the wild cards is that we're going to have to embrace uncertainty. It's, it's not clear which of these are going to pan out in a big way. They all have potential. They are all worth pursuing. Uh, we we stop short in the report about being prescriptive about how. So you know, pilot projects, uh, research and development, even direct public investment. A case can be made for all these things. And and we certainly say they they should all be considered as part of the mix. We don't don't prescribe a recipe exactly for how to drive them. But to your bigger point, I think absolutely that a portfolio approach is exactly what's needed. And as part of that, and so when we think about a portfolio, like if you think about an investment portfolio, you're implicitly accepting that parts of it are going to underperform that in order to get the larger gains that come with you know, a, a diverse portfolio where you're hedging your bets, it's gonna come with some losses. And I think we need to be tolerant and accepting and even welcoming of, of some of those challenges and setbacks because only through that larger portfolio approach can, will we be able to realize the potential of the ones that are going to work out.
1: Fair point. Um- so, on to the key finding number six, which is safe bets and wild cards represent two distinct policy problems that are better considered in separate policy conversations.
0: What do you mean by that? So, to our mind, what, what we have found in this report is that safe bets and wild cards are critical to the net zero transition, but they're different things. So safe bets are all about deployment and uptake. We need to get them out there as soon as possible. So policy that can support that includes big, strong economy-wide incentives from things like carbon pricing or flexible regulations or even some subsidies. So you really need to just drive them and and get them out there with safe bets. wildcards it's all about developing them, advancing them, getting them ready for when we need them. Now that work can't wait. That has to start today and that the carbon price, those tools are helpful for that, but they might not also be enough, that you might need that boost of the signal in the form of things like R&D support, direct public investment, the things we were talking about earlier. That is a really, really critical part of what it takes to drive wildcards. But too often, we're talking past each other when it comes to these sorts of solutions, that the proponents of wildcards can't earn the trust of the proponents of safe bets because people sort of think, oh, that's just a distraction from the work I have to do with safe bets. And the proponents of safe bets, you know, don't see eye to eye with the proponents of wild cards because the, the wild card folks will say, oh, but you're ignoring the potential that exists over here. Both are right and they can't talk past each other. One can't be a substitute for the other. So a complete climate plan to my mind includes a plan for safe bets And for wild cards, if you've only got one, you're not playing with a full hand to sort of torture the the card game metaphor to death a bit there.
1: Well, let's talk about the seventh uh, key finding, which is about uh, negative emissions. And as a special type of wild card, why why do you call it special?
0: So you can really think of it as the ultimate wildcard. So in our analysis, we find that it could be absolutely massive in terms of the contribution it makes. So if we could get all the technical kinks worked out, if we could drive down costs enough, if we could get this stuff deployed at the scale and a lot more ifs after that, it could come to be one of the most effective and cost effective ways of dealing with the last part of that journey to net zero. The last reductions, the ones that are coming out of the industry sector, out of freight, out of aviation, are really expensive to do directly. Those solutions could offer the opportunity to offset them through negative emissions going on elsewhere. So that's a really promising opportunity. There's also evidence that we're going to need these sorts of things in the long term because getting to net zero is just step one. A lot of assessments say we have to get to net negative global emissions over the long term. So we want them for the option value in that longer term journey, but they're uncertain. And to place a bet on this is the kind of future that we want to buy in on to go all in on that vision is super risky because if it doesn't work out, you risk locking yourself in on a path that becomes more expensive to get off of or that puts that net zero target in jeopardy. So certainly we would say it's, it belongs on, on in the mix. It's something we ought to pursue, but to bet on it is a risky proposition.
1: Yeah, I can, I've heard it uh, said in conversation that uh, we should not hobble our economy now with things like carbon taxes, because you know, by 2050, there'll be, you know, this uh, technology to take carbon dioxide right out of the atmosphere and we can just wait and benefit from that. And so, as you say, that's a risky bet. And if we if we were to wait, we might be, you know, sadly disappointed when it- Yeah, and I think change. that
0: wait and see argument is, is problematic in the first place for the reasons you mentioned, but also just, it doesn't even make sense as far as I'm concerned that the carbon price is the thing that will help support the incentives to develop those technologies. Uh, private companies aren't going to do this out of their own voluntary action. The signal that the carbon price provides that we're going to place a value on avoided or reduced carbon emissions. That's what helps drive those and advance those technologies. Again, it's not enough. You need other things too. But the idea that we can just wait and see for these things to work out on their own. Absolutely not. You need policy to push.
1: So let's talk about number eight. And I think this is really important for any Canadians who happen to be to be listening, and that is that pathways to 2050 to net zero emissions have far-reaching implications for the well-being of Canadians, and not only health and other well-being, but economic. So what we're talking about here is that if Canada wants to continue to enjoy the prosperity it's had in the past, and to be perhaps even more prosperous in the future, it cannot be passive in terms of how it approaches the energy transition. It has to mitigate risk. It has to seize opportunities and be aggressive about it. Is that a fair summation of key finding number eight?
0: Yeah, and and I think it's what it's really doing is underscoring a point that I think most people understand intuitively, that this big transition we're talking about is much more than a technology and market transition, that this is going to touch the lives and livelihoods of people all over the country. And we need to be very conscious of that and and build it into the design of how we're going to go about that transition. So not only considering the effects in in the design of policies, but thinking about other complementary policies that support for workers that end up dislocated, uh, support for disadvantaged groups that might otherwise get left behind, uh, support for low-income households that might have trouble affording some of the solutions we're talking about absent some support. Uh, So really trying to hit that point home that this is a social transition as much as it's a market and a technology transition.
1: Yeah, fair point. Well, we've gone through the key findings. Let's talk now about the recommendations, the four recommendations that you make in the report. Number one is that government should create incentives for the widespread, widespread deployment of safe bet solutions, building on policy mechanisms already in place. And one question I have for you on this, Jason, is the fact that in Can- Canada is a very decentralized federation. Uh, the federal government cannot simply uh, uh, direct provincial governments. Uh, they have split jurisdiction on, on many, uh, areas where that have an effect on energy transition policy, climate policy. How does that, how how do you think that should be resolved?
0: It's, it's a, it's a tricky part of this, right? That it's the nature of Canada's governance, that this shared jurisdiction and, and governments not seeing eye to eye on, on how we should go about this. And even in some cases, whether we should go about this makes it a real challenge. And, and, in terms of that governance we can come back to some of the specifics in, in our recommendation three but what i would the way i would answer the question here is to note that you know so we have a federal government that is committed uh to hitting canada's climate targets that has brought in a policy consistent with canada's 2030 target and i think now it's up to the provinces to decide how much they want to build on it in, in many ways the ball is in their court and i would say i think that they should welcome the opportunity that There are plenty of ways to design and facilitate a transition that is unique to the jurisdiction we're talking about. This net zero transition will look different in different places. And while the federal government has provided the broad signal with that big economy-wide carbon price, there's lots of work to do in provinces and in cities to make sure that other policies that nudge things in the direction that is going to work the best in that place are an important part of the mix. So I think we should welcome that opportunity. I think we should welcome the fact that it's an opportunity to have a laboratory of policies. We can be trying different things at different levels, different governments. So I, I think we should embrace that complexity, even though it creates some challenges. And, and I'm glad to see that we are moving forward at many levels of government with, with meaningful policy, because absent policy, this isn't going to happen. It, the market left to its own devices, It's I mean, the economics jargon is it's an externality, greenhouse gas emissions. Until we correct that through policy, we are not going to see the meaningful changes that we need on this front. And we're moving in that direction, and there's still more work to do.
1: So let's talk about the second recommendation, which is that governments should manage the risks and portfolios posed by wildcard solutions through a portfolio approach. So you have mentioned that uh, a number of times in our conversation. And I think that Canadians are not as aware as they should be of just how much how big the innovation ecosystem is in Canada. There's a lot of money that gets spent on research and development, on commercializing uh, new technologies. I can think of the federally funded uh, Canadian Research Innovation Network, for instance, which has hubs in, in a number of the, the provinces. And federal government, uh, sorry, provincial governments uh, spend a, a fair amount of money and think of Alberta, the Alberta Innovates Agency and they have innovative approaches to this, such as uh, challenges—you know, five five million dollars for teams to compete to decarbonize natural gas, uh, that sort of thing. So, do you think that the innovation ecosystem in Canada is up to this, up to the task? Does it need tweaking, or maybe more funding, or is it not up to the task and needs an overhaul?
0: Yeah, I mean I, I think you're right to highlight all of the fantastic resources and effort that are going on out there that a lot of people aren't aware of. And, and just to build on it, I would also notice there's a lot of innovation going on in the private sector right now that perhaps flies under the radar. We have a hydrogen fuel cell company in, in Canada that is is renowned lot around the world. We have electric bus manufacturers in Canada that, that people aren't aware of. There's a company on the East Coast that fixes carbon dioxide into concrete that's seeing its its products used more and more globally. Uh, we have that pilot project in Western Canada with carbon engineering to pull it out of the air and fix it underground. So tons of innovation going on. I think, you know, others have, have noted that uh, Canadian innovation and startups face this kind of valley, valley of death where the early innovation is there, they're start, they're a startup, things are happening, but getting the financing to bridge to that growth phase is a challenge. So you know it, it's not an area I have a ton of depth on. Others have noted that challenge. But just in terms of the bigger picture, what I would say is, I think we're ripe for a strategic conversation around where we want to be placing our bets. Uh, and I think some of these wildcards we've identified are areas that are definitely uh, have a strong case for being part of that mix. But the next filter that we need to apply in terms of how we're gonna set priorities in terms of what we're gonna pursue in innovation is what's really in our comparative advantage that yes, you know, a lot of these wild card technologies make sense for Canada. Which ones make the most sense in terms of our ability to be the provider to the world, to export this stuff? It's not a slam dunk that, you know, we can be the biofuel producer of choice or the hydrogen producer of choice. There's advantages. And do we think that we can seize those? What would it take? I think that's the the question and the filter that we need to apply and to really kind of sharpen that strategic focus in terms of where the right places are to place those big bets.
1: Well, let's talk about uh, recommendation number three, which is that governments should increase policy certainty by implementing robust climate accountability frameworks. And this is really an important issue because the federal government not long ago introduced climate accountability uh, legislation. And I interviewed uh, the former Green Party leader, uh, MP Elizabeth uh, Elizabeth May, and she was very critical of the uh, liberal uh, government's uh, legislation, said it didn't go nearly far enough, didn't have uh, uh, Short-term goals and needed more teeth to it. Uh, what's your take on that?
0: Yeah, so a climate. So first, let's start with a bit of definitional work. So a, a climate accountability framework is a set of processes and, and and government governance measures that can help keep a government accountable for its its progress toward its long-term targets. Setting interim uh, interim targets, uh, being forced to make a plan for achieving those, be accountable for missing them. Other countries have done this, and, and we did a study looking at experience in other countries. Uh, the federal government's proposed Bill C-12 does come up short in, in certain fronts in terms of aligning with what we identified as best practices, and so I'd, I'd share many of Elizabeth May's concerns there. At the same time, perhaps not all of them, That, and this is kind of full disclosure, I, you know, I, I think that people can end up disappointed when they hear about how these things actually work in practice. They, they tend to underwhelm. And the reason is that they often lack really kind of hard teeth in terms of the consequences of missing a target. So why do they do that? They do that because if you were to write binding legislation, a future government must, must, must do these things, you invite that future government that doesn't want to, to simply repeal the legislation because you can't bind the hands of a future government. They can always unwrite the law that you wrote. What you're trying to craft is a piece of legislation that where it's more trouble than it's worth to undo it. And instead they work within its bounds. They're held accountable through transparency mechanisms and it creates the opportunities for the public to hold them accountable. I, I think that that limitation is sort of inherent in these frameworks. It was a, frankly a disappointment for me the more I learned about them to realize that th- they can't solve the problem of kind of locking in on future climate policy. That's up to voters. can help with that and they're a key piece of the puzzle and why we recommend them as a way of kind of undertaking this longer-term journey and and even managing the uncertainty that comes with those wildcards as part of that portfolio approach. Uh, So a key piece of the puzzle but but certainly not something that's going to single-handedly get us there.
1: The fourth recommendation is that governments should work to ensure the path to net zero is fair and inclusive and I'm hearing this more and more uh, around the argument for a just transition. And I, you're seeing it in other, in other countries where, for instance, uh, in Germany, the Energiewende, their energy transition which started, you know, long before ours did, or at least sometime before ours did. And one of the impediments to it, getting off coal for Germany, is the fact that so many Germans are employed in, in coal mining. And so that causes problems for politicians who, uh, you know, don't want to alienate those those votes, and so they drag their feet on uh, on getting rid of coal out of uh, Germany's electrical system. So, is this the kind of thing that you had in mind?
0: Yeah, I think that's that's definitely part of what we're thinking there. I think a net we find that a net zero transition does not necessarily lead to a fairer, inclusive, and more inclusive Canada. In fact, it could exacerbate existing inequities so as I said earlier you need to pay really careful attention to that social space now that definitely includes thinking about what you're going to do for workers that may be dislocated on on the path to that transition what are your retraining and and education uh, policies and supports going to be will there be income supports It's also bigger than that too. It's about making sure that we have a workforce that has skills that are aligned with what a net zero economy might need. So that gets into how we train people for trades. It gets into how we we structure high school curriculum. Big, big things to think about there in terms of that broader alignment. And it it gets bigger from there. Thinking about uh, disadvantaged groups and their ability to participate, uh, thinking about lower income households and whether they're going to be able to afford what can be more expensive goods at the point of purchase when we're thinking about some of those energy efficient and non emitting alternatives. So we need to be very careful in sort of uh, assuming that we can just go about this transition and, and sort of let the chips fall where they may. That's a recipe for disaster and a recipe for losing the support of the public and really in the end, perhaps not being successful in that larger transition. So. It's, it's not just a piece of the puzzle. It's a critical piece of the puzzle.
1: So we've come to the end of our conversation, Jason, and I think we've learned a lot here about how uh, Canada should approach the energy transition. And uh, we've made uh, some considerable progress along there, but there's still much work to be done over the next uh, three decades. And so thank you very much for this. Really appreciate it. And for our listeners, uh, if you want to read the executive summary of this study, uh, I'll post the, the link to that. And of course you can, if you want to get the full study, which uh, I haven't had the courage yet to tackle, but uh, Jason tells me is a bit of a beast with uh, the data and the detail. But if you're a policy wonk, maybe you want to dive into that. And so you can find that, you can Google that on the, uh, on the web, find it on the website. Thank you very much for this, Jason. Really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Thank you. All the best.